0: This is a continuation of the book, Thoughts on Religious Experience, by Alexander. The Christian is a soldier and must expect to encounter enemies, and to engage in many a severe conflict. The young convert may well be likened to a raw recruit just enlisted. He feels joyous and strong, full of hope and full of courage. When the veteran Christian warns him of coming dangers and formidable enemies, and endeavors to impress on his mind a sense of his weakness and helplessness without divine aid, he does not understand what he says. He apprehends no dangers or enemies which he is not ready to face, and is ready to think that the aged disciples with whom he converses have been deficient in courage and skill, or have met with obstacles which are now removed out of the way. He views the contest of which they speak as a young soldier does the field of battle at a distance, while he is enjoying his bounty money and marches about with a conscious exultation on account of his military insignia and animated with martial music. The young Christian is commonly treated by his Lord with peculiar tenderness. He is like the babe dandled on the knee and exposed to no hardship. His frames are lively and often joyous, and he lives too much upon them. His love to the Savior and to the saints is fresh and fervent, and his religious zeal, though not well regulated by knowledge, is ardent. He often puts older disciples to the blush by the warmth of His affections and His alacrity in the service of His Redeemer. And it is well if He does not sometimes indulge a censorious spirit in judging those who have been long exercised in the spiritual life. This is indeed the season of His first love, which began to flow in the day of His espousals, and though occasionally dark clouds intercept His views, These are soon forgotten when the clear sunshine breaks forth to cheer him on his way. During this period he delights in social exercises, especially in communion with those of his own age, and in prayer and in praise and spiritual conversation, his heart is lifted up to heaven, and he longs for the time when he may join the songs of the upper temple. But ere long, the scene changes, Gradually the glow of fervent affection subsides, worldly pursuits, even the most lawful and necessary, steal away the heart, and various perplexing entanglements beset the inexperienced traveler. He begins to see that there were many things faulty in his early course. He blames his own weakness or enthusiasm, and in avoiding one extreme he easily falls into the opposite— to which human nature has a strong bias. He enters into more intercourse with the world, and of course imbibes insensibly some portion of its spirit. This has a deadening effect on his religious feelings, and his devotions are less fervent and less punctual, and far more interrupted with vain, wandering thoughts than before. He is apt to fall into a hasty or formal attendance on the daily duties of the closet. And a little matter will sometimes lead him to neglect these precious seasons of grace. A strange forgetfulness of the present of God and of His accountableness for every thought, word, and action seizes upon Him. Close self-examination becomes painful and when attempted is unsuccessful. New evils begin to appear springing up in the heart. Before he is aware, the imagination is filled with sensual imagery, which affording carnal pleasure the train of his thoughts is with difficulty changed. A want of prompt resolution is often the occasion of much guilt and much unhappiness. Pride is sure to lift its head when God is out of view, and it is wonderful how this and kindred evils will get possession and grow so as to be visible to others while the person himself is not aware of the disease. Anger, impatience, fretfulness, envy, undue indulgence of the appetites, love of riches, fondness for dress and show, the love of ease, aversion to spiritual duties, with numerous similar and nameless evils are now bred in the heart and come forth to annoy and retard the Christian in his course." His pride makes him unwilling to open his ear to friendly and fraternal reproof. Such words fall heavily on him and wound his morbid sensibility, so that a conflict takes place between a sense of duty and unmortified pride. He inwardly feels that the rebuke of a brother is just and should be improved to the amendment of the evil pointed out, but pride cannot brook the thought of being exposed and humbled and he tries to find something in the mantra of the rebuke which can be censored, or suspicion will ascribe it to a bad motive. If, in this spiritual conflict, pride should gain the victory, alas, how much sin follows in its train, resentment towards a kind brother, hypocrisy in concealing the real dictates of conscience, and approbation of the inner man, and a neglect of all efforts at improvement." The person thus circumstances instinctively led to endeavor to persuade himself that he has done right. Still, however, the language of his better part is that of self-condemnation. But he hushes it up, and assumes an air of innocence and boldness, and thus a spirit is grieved. Who can describe the trains of evil which ensue on one defeat of this kind? The mind becomes dark and desolate. Communion with God is interrupted, and a course of backsliding commences, which sometimes goes on for years, and then the wanderer is not arrested and brought back without chastisement. In such cases the judgments of God against his own straying children are fearful, and if any who have thus declined experience them not, it is because they are not children. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? Worldly prosperity has ever been found an unfavorable soil for the growth of piety. It blinds the mind to spiritual and eternal things, dries up the spirit of prayer, fosters pride and ambition, furnishes the appropriate food to covetousness, and leads to a sinful conformity to the spirit maxims fashions of the world. Some few have been enabled to pass this ordeal without serious injury and have come forth like the three children from Nebuchadnezzar's furnace, without the smell of fire on their garments. But this could not have been unless a son of man had been with them. Such persons use all their health, influence, and wealth in promoting the kingdom of Christ, but generally God in mercy refuses to give worldly prosperity to his children. He has chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith. That is, he has commonly chosen poverty as the safest condition for his children. His are an afflicted and poor people, and they shall trust in the name of the Lord. But the poor have their conflicts and temptations as well as the rich. They are continually tempted to discontent, to envy at the prosperity of the rich, sometimes to use unlawful means to satisfy their wants. On account of the dangers of both these conditions, Agur prayed, Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, lest I be full and deny thee, and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and take the name of my God in vain. But in whatever state providence has placed us, we should therewith be content. Certainly when Christians make haste to be rich, they are not governed by the wisdom which comes from above. No wonder that they pierce themselves through with many sorrows and are often in danger of eternal perdition. If we sought wealth from no other motive but to use it for God's glory, it would do us no harm, for this principle would regulate the pursuit so that it would not be detrimental to the kingdom of God within us. The enemies of the Christian have been commonly divided into three classes, the world, the flesh, and the devil. But though these may be conceived of and spoken of separately, they resist a Christian soldier by their combined powers. The devil is the agent, the world furnishes a bait or the object of temptation, and the flesh or our own corrupt nature is a subject on which the temptation operates. Sometimes indeed Satan injects his fiery darts and kindled in hell to frighten a timid soul and drive it to despair. But in this he often overshoots his mark and drives the poor, trembling soul nearer to his captain, whose broad shield affords ample protection. And we are not to suppose that we are not often led astray by the enticements of sin within us, without the aid of Satan. But we need not be afraid of charging too much evil upon this arch-adversary. He is ever on the alert, and is exceedingly cautious in his approaches. Long experience has doubtless greatly increased his power and subtlety, unless he should be more restrained than formerly. Some people make a mock of Satan's temptations as though they were the dreams of superstitious souls, not so Paul and Peter and John, not so Luther and Calvin and Zwingli, not so any who understand the nature of the spiritual warfare. It is to the great injury of many professors that they are not constantly on the watch against the wiles of the devil. If you wish to know where he will be likely to meet you, I would say in your own room, in the church, on your bed, and in your daily intercourse with men. A single thought which suddenly starts up in your mind will show that the enemy is near, and is suggesting such thoughts as without his agency never can be accounted for. Watch, therefore. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. CHAPTER Twelve: THE SPIRITUAL CONFLICT Satan's Temptations, Evil Thoughts, and a Case in Illustration. We have spoken of the Christians' enemies in the general. It is now intended to enter into a more particular view of the conflict which is experienced by the pilgrim to Zion. Swarms of vain thoughts may be reckoned among the first and most constant enemies of the servant of God. The mind of man is like a fountain which is continually sending forth streams, There is not a moment of our waking time when the rational soul is entirely quiescent. How it may be in our sleeping hours, this is not the place to inquire, as we are not in that state engaged in this warfare. Perhaps this is saying too much. I believe that sin may be committed in sleep, for there is often a deliberate choice of evil after a struggle between a sense of duty and an inclination of sin. And often the same vain and impure thoughts which were too much indulged in waking hours infest us when asleep, and may find much readier entertainment than when we have all our senses about us. It is difficult, indeed, to say when moral agency is suspended so as to render the person inculpable for his volitions. And many know that they consent to temptations in sleep when they abhor the evil as soon as they are awake. And in other cases inclination is indulged where there is not the least sense of the moral turpitude of the act. But in some cases persons in sleep consent to sin with a clear apprehension of the evil of the things to which they consent. Here there must be some guilt. For if there was not an evil nature prone to iniquity, such volitions would not take place. Two things are in our power, and these we should do. First, to avoid evil thoughts and such pampering of the body as has a tendency to pollute our dreams, and secondly, to pray to God to preserve us from evil thoughts even in sleep. Particularly, we should pray to be delivered from the influence of Satan during our sleeping hours. Andrew Baxter, in his inquiry into the nature of the human soul, is of opinion that dreams can in no way be accounted for, but by the agency of other spirits acting on ours. While I do not adopt this theory of dreaming, I am inclined to believe that, somehow or other, both good and evil spirits have access to our minds in sleep. They actually seem to hold conversation with us and suggest things of which we had never thought before. To return from this digression, it may be safely asserted that no human mind in this world is free from the incursion of vain thoughts. The proportion of such thoughts depends on the circumstances of the individual, and the degree of spirituality and self-government to which he has attained. The question very naturally arises here, is the mere occurrence of vain or wicked thoughts sinful? This is a nice question in casuistry and should not be answered inconsiderately. It is said in Scripture, the thought of foolishness is sin. But by thought in this place we should probably understand intention. The wise man would teach that sin may be committed in the mind without any external act, a doctrine abundantly taught in other parts of holy writ. Or we may understand it to mean that when thoughts of evil are entertained and cherished in the mind, there is sin. But as our thoughts are often entirely involuntary, arising from what we know not, it cannot be that every conception of a thing wrong is itself sinful. If I conceive of another person stealing, or murdering, or committing adultery, if my mind abhors the deed, the mind is not thereby polluted. Thoughts may not in themselves be sinful and yet they may become so if they feel and occupy the mind to the exclusion of better thoughts. Ideas of present scenes and passing transactions are not in themselves sinful because necessary and often required by the duties which we have to perform. But if the current of these thoughts is so continuous that they leave no room for spiritual meditations, they become sinful by their excess. Again... Every Christian has set times for prayer and other devotional exercises, but if the mind on such occasion wanders off from the contemplation of those objects which should occupy it, such forgetfulness of God's presence and vain wandering of the thoughts are evidently sinful. And here is an arena on which many a severe conflict has been undergone, and where, alas, Many overthrows have been experienced by the sincere worshipper of God. How our perfectionists dispose of this matter, and what their professed experience is, I know not. I suppose, however, that they are at best no more exempt from wandering thoughts than any other Christian. And if so, they must practice a double hypocrisy, first in persuading themselves that there is no sin in all this, and secondly in denying or concealing from others their real experience on this subject. But is it not true that from the very laws of association of ideas there will often be an involuntary wandering of the thoughts? This is admitted, and it is conceded also that it may be impossible in all cases to determine with precision which of our straying thoughts contracts guilt and how much blame attaches to us, when our thoughts suddenly start aside from the mark like a deceitful bow. There are, however, some plain principles which sound casuistry can establish. If, when the thoughts thus start aside, they are not immediately recalled, then there is sin. For the mind has this power over its thoughts, and when it is not exercised, it argues negligence or something worse. Again, if this deviation of our thoughts would have been prevented by a solemn sense of the divine presence and omniscience, then it is sinful, for such impressions should accompany us to the throne of grace. And finally, if the true reason of these erratic trains of thought at such seasons is owing to a secret aversion to spiritual things, and preference at the moment to some carnal or selfish indulgence, then indeed there is not only sin, but sin of enormous guilt. It is the direct acting of enmity against God. There are many, it is to be feared, who take little or no account of their thoughts, and who, if they run through the external round of duties, feel satisfied. Multitudes are willing to be religious and even punctilious in duty if no demand is made upon them for fixedness of attention and fervency and elevation of affection. The carnal mind hates nothing so much as a spiritual approach to God, and the remainders of this enmity and the pious are the very law in their members which wars against the law of the mind. This is the very core of their inbred sin, from which all evil thoughts proceed, on account of which they need to be humbled in the dust every day that they live. There is much reason to fear, however, that many who appear to be serious Christians are not at all in the habit of watching their thoughts and ascertaining the evil that is in them. I knew a person, nearly half a century ago, who, being greatly troubled with wandering thoughts in times of devotion, was solicitous to know whether any other person was troubled in the same way, and to the same degree, with such swarms of vain thoughts. He carefully wrote down what he experienced in this way and then took it to two serious professors of whose piety he had a good opinion and without intimating that it was his own experience inquired whether they were acquainted with anything like this. They both acknowledged that they were often interrupted with wandering thoughts and prayer but in the degree described in the paper they were not and could not believe that any Christian was. There may be, and no doubt is, a constitutional difference among men in regard to this matter. In some minds the links of association are so strong that when a particular idea is suggested, the whole train must come along, and thus the object previously before the mind is lost sight of, and will not be recovered without a resolute effort. An old writer says, What busy flies were to the sacrifices on the altar, such are vain thoughts to our holy services. Their continued buzzing disturbs the mind and distracts its devotions. St. Bernard complained much of these crowds of vain thoughts. He said, They pass and repass, come in and go out, and will not be controlled. I would fain remove them, but cannot... This is in perfect accordance with Paul's experience, when I would do good, evil is present with me. And Chrysostom says that nothing is more dreadful to the godly than sin. This is death. This is hell. Therefore, though nothing amiss be discerned by man, yet is he afflicted deeply, deeply afflicted on account of his rebellious thoughts, which being in the secret closet of the heart can only appear unto God. The same old writer introduces a struggling soul mourning on this account. Quote, oh, the perplexing trouble of my distracting thoughts! How do they continually disturb the quiet of my mind and make my holy duties become a weariness of my soul? They cool the heart, they damp the vigor, they get in the comfort of my devotions. Even when I pray God to forgive my sins, I then sin whilst I am praying for forgiveness. Yea, whether it be in the church or in the secret place, so frequently and so violently do these thoughts withdraw my heart from God's servant that I cannot have confidence He hears my suit, because I know by experience I do not hear myself. Surely, therefore, God must needs be far off from my prayer, whilst my heart is so far out of His presence, hurried away with a crowd of vain imaginations, quote. To this troubled soul he then applies the following consolations. Number 1. These vain thoughts, being thy burden, shall not be thy ruin, and though they do take away from the sweetness, they shall not take from the sincerity of thy devotions. Number two, it is no little glory which we give to God in the acknowledgement of His omnipresence and omniscience, that we acknowledge Him to be privy to the first risings of our most inward thoughts. Number three, it is much the experience of God's children, when the devoutest saints, that their thoughts of God and of Christ, of heaven and holiness, are very unsteady and fleeting like the sight of a star through an optic glass held by a pulsed hand, such is our view of divine objects. Number four, know thou hast the gracious mediation of an all-sufficient Savior to supply thy defects, and procure an acceptance of thy sincere though imperfect devotions. Number five, if thou hast the gracious mediation of an all-sufficient Savior to supply thy defects, so hast thou the strengthening power of his Holy Spirit to help thy infirmities, which strength is made perfect in weakness. When thou art emptied, it shall fill thee. When thou art stumbled, it shall raise thee. The experience of God's saints will tell thee that they have long languished under this cross of vain thoughts. Yet after long conflict have obtained a joyful conquest, and from mourning doves have become mounting eagles. The conflict with vain and wandering thoughts is common to all Christians, and is a subject of their frequent and deep lamentations. But there are other conflicts which seem to be peculiar to some of God's children, or are experienced in a much greater degree by some than others. These arise from horribly wicked thoughts, blasphemous, atheistical, or abominably impure, which are injected with a power which a soul cannot resist and sometimes continues to rise in such thick succession that the mind can scarcely be said to ever be entirely free from them. I have known persons of consistent piety and sound intellect who have been infested with the continual incursion of such thoughts for weeks and months together, so that they had no rest during their waking hours, and even their sleep was disturbed with frightful dreams. Whilst thus harassed, they had no composure to attend on religious duties. When they attempted to pray, Satan was present with his terrific suggestions, and when they presented themselves with God's people in his house, they found no comfort there, for the thought was continually introduced into their minds that there was no truth in the Bible or in any, other of, its do- or in any of its doctrines. And it is full of wonder what new and unthought-of forms of blasphemy and infidelity do, in such cases, arise, so that the ideas which occupy their minds are often inexpressible, and indeed not fit to be expressed in words. These may be emphatically called the fiery darts of the wicked one. They may be compared to balls or brands of fire cast into a house full of combustibles. The object of the enemy by such assaults is to perplex and harass a child of God and drive him to despair. And as many who are thus tempted are ignorant of Satan's devices and of the depths of his subtlety, and charge upon themselves the fault of all these wicked thoughts, the effect aimed at does actually take place. The tempted, harassed soul is not only distressed above measure, but for a season is actually cast down to the borders of despair. We know of no affliction in this life which is more intolerable than such a state of temptation when continued long. No doubt it is true that there are certain states of the physical system which favor the effect of these temptations, but this does not prove that these thoughts do not proceed from Satan. This arch. Finn is deeply versed in the physiology of human nature, and wherever he discovers a weak point, there he makes his assault. The melancholic, and persons wasted and weakened with excessive grief, are peculiarly susceptible of injury from such temptations, as is that class of doubting, mourning Christians who are forever disposed to look on the dark side of the picture, and who are wont to write bitter things against themselves. On uninstructed minds, the effect often is to induce the belief that they have sinned the sin unto death by blaspheming the Holy Ghost, or that they have sinned beyond the reach of mercy, and that God has abandoned them to be a prey to sin and Satan. But it is not upon ignorant, weak, and diseased persons only that these furious assaults are made. Such a man as Luther was in frequent conflicts of this kind, and he was so persuaded that these were the temptations of the devil that he speaks of his presence with as much confidence as if he had seen him by his own side. A friend of the writer was for months so harassed by these fiery darts of the wicked one that I never saw any human being in a more pitiable condition of extreme suffering, and although there was no intermission during his waking hours, there were seasons when these blasphemous suggestions were injected with peculiar and terrifying violence. Knowing this person to be discreet as well as pious, I requested by letter some account of this dreadful state of mind, if there was a freedom to make the communication In answer, I received recently a letter from which the following is an extract, I feel a singular reluctance to speak of my religious experience. I have felt that my case was a very remarkable one. I have thought at times that no one could recount a similar experience. It has appeared to me so uncommon that I have refrained from disclosing the peculiar exercises of my mind to the most intimate friend. I know not that I ever opened to you my case, with the exception of that distressing point to which you refer, and even then I think I was not very particular. That was a season far more distressing than any I have ever experienced. I well remember mine afflictions and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My deliverance from it was an unspeakable mercy. I have no doubt that the state of my health had some connection with the mental sufferings I had then endured. My constitution, which had always been feeble, had given to my disposition a proneness to melancholy, and in my bereaved and desolate state I was peculiarly susceptible of gloomy impressions. My nervous system was deeply affected. Sleep at one time forsook my pillow for successive nights. It was under these circumstances that I sunk into the darkness and distress which you witness. In all this there was nothing very remarkable. I think very many can record a similar experience. It was not the fact that in a feeble state of health I was dark and comfortless in spirit. That has so much tried me, but the peculiarity of my case seemed to consist in the nature of my spiritual conflicts. You may perhaps recollect that I stated to you that my chief distress arose from blasphemous suggestions unnatural, monstrous, and horrid, which seemed to feel my mind and hurry away my thoughts with a force as irresistible as a whirlwind. I strove against them, I prayed against them, but it was all in vain. The more I strove, the more they prevailed. The very effort to banish them appeared to detain them. My soul all this while was wrapped in midnight darkness and tossed like the ocean in a storm. It seemed to me as if I was delivered over to the powers of darkness, and that to aggravate my wretchedness some strange and awfully impious association would be suggested by almost every object that met my eye. You asked me to describe my deliverance? It was gradual, a return of domestic comforts, a restoration of health, and an occupation of the mind with duty, were the means which God was pleased to bless to the removal of this distressing experience." FOR TWELVE OR THIRTEEN YEARS I HAVE HAD NO RETURN OF THE STATE OF MIND EXCEPT TO A PARTIAL EXTENT. YET I HAVE AT TIMES BEEN GREATLY HARASSED WITH THESE FIERY DARTS OF THE WICKED ONE, WHICH I CAN TRULY SAY ARE MY sorest AFFLICTION. I HAVE ALWAYS NOTICED THAT THESE PAINFUL EXERCISES OF mine HAVE ATTENDED SEASONS OF SPECIAL EXAMINATION AND PRAYER. When I have thought most of my obligation to God and endeavored to meditate most on divine things, then it has been that my mind has suffered most from the intrusion of thoughts at which my soul is filled with anguish, and from which I desire deliverance more than from death. This fact is mysterious to me. I cannot but think I love God. I am sure I do desire an entire consecration to Christ. It is my daily prayer to attain holiness. I esteem the way of salvation glorious, and justification through the alone righteousness of Christ is a precious doctrine. But did ever any Christian experience such trials Is a question which I am ready, often, to ask? I know of no uninspired writers that have come nearer a description of what I have experienced in Bunyan and Newton. The hymn of the latter, commencing with, I ask the Lord that I might grow, contains many thoughts remarkably accordant with my experience." You see, I have nothing to relate that is instructive or cheering, and yet I sometimes feel thankful for the terrible conflicts which I endure, for there is nothing which so constantly drives me to a throne of grace, nothing that strips me so entirely of self-dependence and creates within me such longing after holiness. I am much inclined to think that Satan is far less dangerous when he comes as a roaring lion and frightens the soul with his horrid blasphemies when he transforms himself into an angel of light and seduces our affections gradually and secretly away from God and attaches him sinfully to the world. P.S. The most discouraging fact in all my experience has been, what I have already alluded to, the rushing in of a tide of unutterably impious thoughts or imaginations at a time when I have sought the most elevated and glorious views of God— breaking up my peace and comfort when I have tried to fix my mind most intently on spiritual objects. Is the onset of the enemy to drive one from a close communion with God, or is it to be traced to a law of association recalling past
1: experiences?
0: If I had more confidence in my religious experience, I think I could suggest many thoughts that might be useful to Christians under temptation, and especially when suffering under certain physical disorders. "...one thing I am free to say, youthful occupation is essential to the restoration and peace of some minds." Many other eminent servants of God have experienced in various forms the same conflicts with the great adversary... And when we describe these temptations as not infrequent in the experience of the children of God, we do not speak without authority. Paul says, For we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this world, against spiritual wickedness in high places. From this passage it is evident that our spiritual foes are numerous and powerful, and that the believer's conflict with them is violent. It is a wrestling or a contention which requires them to put forth all their strength and to exercise all their skill. Therefore it was that the apostle, who was himself engaged in this conflict, urges it upon Christians to put on the panoply of God. Against such enemies, armor, offensive and defensive, is requisite. And blessed be God, there is an armory from which such armor may be drawn. Here Paul's enumeration of the several parts of this panoply. The girdle of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, sandals of gospel peace, the shield of faith. This he places highest as being an indispensable defense against the fiery darts of the wicked one. The helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is a word of God, to all which must be added prayer and watchfulness, As one of God's methods of comforting and strengthening His mourning children is by good books, I embrace this opportunity of recommending to those engaged in the spiritual warfare William Gurnall's Christian and Complete Armor. In such cases there is almost a necessity of referring to old authors, for somehow or other our modern sermons and tracts touch but seldom on these things which fill so many of the pages of our fathers. The soul struggling with the intrusion of wicked thoughts may be supposed to express its feelings in language like the following, Oh, my wretchedly wicked heart, which is a fountain from which proceeds such streams of abominable thoughts! Sure, if ever I had been washed in the fountain of Christ's blood, or at all purified by His Spirit, so foul a corruption could never cleave unto my soul, woe is me! For so far am I from being a holy temple of the Lord that my heart rather seems to be the cage of every unclean bird and even a den of devils. The flames of hell seem to flash in my face, and the amazing terrors of cursed blasphemies torture my soul and wound my conscience even unto death. I would rather choose to die ten thousand deaths than undergo the fears and frights and bitter pangs of my amazing thoughts and dreadful imaginations. In every place and every action, in the church and in my own room, in my meditations and in my prayers, these abominable and tormenting thoughts follow and harass me so that I loathe myself and am a burden to myself. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? Alas, I perish, whilst ashamed to speak what I abhor to think. I must needs despair of a cure, not knowing how to lay open my sore. To a complaint of this kind, a pious Robert Mossum, once Bishop of Londonderry, addresses the following grounds of consolation. Number one. The horrid blasphemies which affright thy soul, though they are thy thoughts, yet they are Satan's suggestions, and not having the consent of thy will, they bring no guilt upon thy conscience. It is agreeable to the truth of God's word, and the judgment of all divines, ancient and modern, that where the will yields no consent, there the soul may suffer temptation, but act no sin." The importunity and frequency of these suggestions, which weary the soul, resisting, shall bring a greater crown of glory in its overcome. And true it is that he that is born of God keepeth himself. That wicked one toucheth him not. But how toucheth him not? Is it meant of wicked temptations? No, sure. But of willful transgressions. He touches him not so as to leave the impress of sin and guilt upon the soul. It is no sin to be tempted, for Christ our Lord and Savior was tempted, but without sin. To admit the temptation with allowance or delight, that is sin. Number two, that these foul and frightful suggestions of not the consent of thy will appears by this, that thou hast a loathing and abhorring of them, which speaks the greatest aversion, and is so far from a consenting of the will. What is forcibly cast into the mind cannot be said to be received with our consent. It is out of our power to prevent Satan from suggesting evil thoughts. These arise not from thy own corrupt nature. They are brats laid at thy door, not thine own lawful children. They are the buffetings of Satan. Paul had a messenger of Satan to buffet him which was as a thorn in his flesh, constantly pricking and keeping him uneasy and tempting him to impatience. He prayed earnestly and repeatedly to be delivered from this cross, but his request was not granted. Yet he received an answer more gracious and beneficial than the removal of the thorn would have been, for the Lord said unto him, My grace is sufficient for thee. The heart assailed by Satan is like a city besieged within which there lie concealed many traitors, who, as far as they dare, will give encouragement and aid to the enemy without. This creates a chief difficulty in the case of many temptations, for although there is not a full consent or a prevailing willingness, yet there is something which too much concurs with the temptation, except in shocking blasphemies which fill the soul with terror. The soul afflicted with these temptations is apt to think its case singular. It is ready to exclaim, never were any of God's children in this condition, and must be some strange corruption which induces the enemy thus to assault me, and some awful displeasure of God towards me which makes him permit such a temptation, to which it may be replied, afflictions of this kind are no new thing, that with the real children of God. Such cases are not uncommon in every age and occur in the pastoral experience of every faithful minister. Some persons have for years been so afflicted with these temptations that they have pined away and have been brought near the gates of death. These too, persons of no ordinary piety. Take then the following directions: number one. Learn to discriminate between the temptations and the sin of temptation. Number two. EXAMINE WITH CARE WHAT TRANSGRESSIONS MAY HAVE OCCASIONED THIS SORE AFFLICTION. 3. HUMBLE YOURSELF BEFORE GOD WITH FASTING AND PRAYER, AND SUPPLICATE THE THRONE OF GRACE TO OBTAIN THE MERCY OF GOD THROUGH THE MERITS OF THY SAVIOR, FOR THE FULL AND FREE PARDON OF WHATEVER SIN HAS OCCASIONED THESE TEMPTATIONS. Beseech GOD TO REBUKE SATAN, AND THEN MAKE AN UNRESERVED RESIGNATION OF THYSELF INTO THE HANDS OF JESUS. The great Shepherd of the flock, that He may keep thee as a tender lamb from the paw and teeth of the roaring lion. Number four: If still these thoughts intrude, turn thy mind quickly away from them. They are most effectually subdued by neglect. Number five: O thou afflicted, tossed with TEMPEST, and not comforted, act as children do with their parents when they see anything frightful. They cling closer and hold faster. So do thou with thy God and Savior, Satan's aim is to drive thee from God into some desperate conclusions, or into some ruinous act. But thou mayest disappoint this subtle adversary by running to Christ as thy refuge, and cleaving to him with humble, believing confidence. And when Satan sees this, he will soon cease from the violence of his temptations when the devil has left thee, angels will come and minister unto thee, especially the angel of the covenant, Christ Jesus. He shall rejoice thy soul with the quickening graces and cheering comforts of his spirit.
1: This Reformation audio track is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. SWRB makes thousands of classic Reformation resources available, free and for sale, in audio, video, and printed formats. Our many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing thousands of classic and contemporary Puritan and Reform books, tapes, and videos at great discounts, is on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com.